Carolyn was up in McCall this week for the uh, women's retreat, so my uh, two boys and I, the two boys that live here in Boise, went uh, camping down on the South Fork of the Boise River yesterday. And uh, about four o'clock in the afternoon, they got bored with uh, fishing and decided to stir up a little trouble. So they took our canoe down the river. I uh, told them that most people don't float the river past the point where we were, that there are some falls downstream. But they said, well, the water's real low. We won't have any trouble. So I said, well, uh, when you get to the falls, walk them before you run them. And I was going to pick them up down at the end of the road. So I drove the car down to the end of the road, waited and waited and waited, and they didn't show up. So I drove back uh, upstream and began to look for them. And I saw them on the edge of the stream with the canoe upside down. There's a big ding in the side of the canoe. And, and one of them was lying flat on, the, on his back on the rocks, and the other was sitting on the canoe. And at first I thought they'd been badly hurt. And then I realized they were both laughing. And I went down to the stream where they were sitting. And uh, sure enough, they'd made it through the first set of falls all right. But they got crosswise going through the second and flipped the canoe. And both of them went out. And uh, they were just drenched from head to head to toe. And, but they salvaged the canoe and some of the stuff they had in, the, in there with them. And, and they were okay. Randy was sitting on the canoe. And he looked up at, at me and he said, uh, he said, walk the rapids before you run them. And he said, uh, he said, you know, that's sort of a parable on life, isn't it? And I said, yes, it is, as a matter of fact. And it occurred to me that uh, that's exactly what we do here on, on Sunday morning. We walk the rapids before we run them. Uh, we take a look at some of the troubled periods that we can encounter in life, some of the rough times coming up, and we walk through them on the basis of the Word and see how to deal with them. You have to walk the rapids before you run them. And I, I think one of the most difficult times of life the most tumultuous, upsetting times are times when we're rejected by another. I know that some of you, uh, some of you women, have been in the past or are now being rejected by your husbands. Uh, they have filed for divorce and walked out, or they may still be there, but emotionally they've uh, they've withdrawn. Uh, they're in the house, but there's no one at home. If you know what I mean, they don't talk. They, they're, they've cut you off. You have. Nothing, no intimacy, there's nothing going between you. And that kind of, uh, of rejection is very, very difficult to cope with. I often say to women who, who talk to me about that sort of thing, that is, that is the hardest thing, I think, for a woman to handle. And then, of course, it happens to men, too, as well. I know some of you men uh, have experienced that sort of rejection. Your wives have either walked off or, again, emotionally, they've, they've left home. And those times are, those times are very hard. Uh, they amount to a betrayal by a dear friend, someone that we've, we've put our trust in. And uh, our Lord understands. That's, that's what, what always encourages us. Our Lord has gone through these experiences of life. He's run the rapids ahead of us. And uh, he knows what to expect. And he teaches us how to handle these hard things in, in life. And that's what we're going to see this morning. Our Lord was rejected. He was betrayed. And the way he handled this situation is very, very instructive for us. This is the example that he set for us. Now, will you turn with me to John, the 13th chapter, please, verse 18. Uh, as you remember, this uh, discourse took place in the so-called upper room. Our Lord has just completed the meal with the disciples. And in in, in, at some point in this supper, he rose 
washed their feet, sat down, commanded them to wash one another's feet, and uh, pronounced a blessing upon those who, who did. Verse 17, if you know these things, and you do, you've heard me speak of them, you've seen me do them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And as I pointed out, that conditional clause anticipates a maybe yes and a maybe no response. We may not obey. And that's what leads him into verse 18. I do not speak of all of you. In other words, there would be one in this group who would not obey, who would not submit to him as teacher and Lord. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. In other words, there has to be this exception because Scripture uh, speaks of it. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now, he's quoting from a psalm, Psalm 41. David is the author of that psalm, and it would seem that he wrote this psalm when he was in exile. Uh, he was driven off the throne by his son Absalom. He was betrayed by a family member. He was driven off into the Judean wilderness for a period of time. And uh, what perhaps hurt him worst of all was the betrayal of a dear friend, Ahithophel, who had been in the inner circle. He was part of the court. He was his counselor and uh, one of his best friends. And who had eaten at his table, which was in the ancient Near East, is a sign of intimacy and friendship and, and companionship. He'd eaten at his table. And now he says, he has lifted up his heel. He has kicked me, is the idea. And uh, that was hard for David to bear. That, that, that hurt him deeply because Ahithophel was his dear friend. In fact, if you go back to the psalm and read it, what he actually says is, My dear friend in whom I trusted, he who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. David was heartbroken over, over the rejection of his, of his friend Ahithophel. And our Lord could understand. He, this situation was um, analogous to his. It is, in fact, he said, predictive. What David went through, because he was the king, is analogous to what the Messiah would go through. So it was foreordained that someone, sometime, who ate our Lord's bread would uh, betray him. Now, uh, he predicts the betrayal because it's a part of his prophetic office. That's the significance of verse 19. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he, that is, I am the Messiah. Uh, one of the marks of a prophet was that they could predict the future with 100% accuracy. When Israel came into, into the land of Canaan, they asked how they could distinguish between false and true prophets. And this was one of the marks that Moses gave them. One of the signs of an authentic prophet was that he could predict the future with complete accuracy. Now, Jesus is predicting the future. He's saying, some one of you will betray me. And uh, you'll remember after it comes to pass. And this is simply another authenticating sign of my, uh, of my prophetic office. Now he goes on in verse 20 to speak of the authority which an apostle has. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send, the word apostle comes from that verb to send, he who receives whomever I send receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me. Uh, this is descriptive of the high calling and privilege of an apostle. When the, these, this select group of men went out in Jesus' name, they went out with the authority of Jesus himself. 
But, in verse 21, we read that when Jesus said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified. That is, he gave evidence that he was troubled by what he said. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. When he thought of the high and holy calling of an apostle, and he thought that one of the apostles would betray him, it distressed him greatly that anyone would prostitute this gift, this, this great privilege that an apostle had troubled him deeply. Now, I, I, uh, I find great encouragement from realizing that our Lord became troubled, unsettled at times, emotionally shaken, uh, anxiety over this sort of thing, concern over rejection is not sin. Our Lord never sinned. So this couldn't possibly be sin. Uh, it's encouraging to know that our Lord was shaken at times, emotionally. That's a mark of his humanity. Our Lord was fully human as well as fully divine. He experienced all the emotions that you and I feel. And uh, rejection or betrayal shook him to the core. It hurt. It always hurts. And uh, that, that hurt is reflected by the way he, he said, uh, by the way he made this prediction. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of, of which one he was speaking. Now, isn't that odd? Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him. We know that from the gospel, the other gospel accounts. He knew that Judas was the betrayer. He had him spotted from the beginning. He knew what was in man, John tells us in the beginning verses of the, of the gospel. So he knew Judas. And yet nothing in his attitude toward Judas, Judas betrayed that knowledge. He never betrayed the betrayer. Isn't that interesting? He was just as kind to him as he was to the other apostles. Literally, uh, the verse says that uh, the disciples looked at one another without a way to know of which one he was speaking. Nothing in Jesus' demeanor, his attitude, his response, his reaction to Judas ever tipped them off to the fact that this was the one that would betray him. He was never cold toward him. He was always concerned and compassionate toward Judas. They must have talked into the night, and our Lord inquired into his family and his state, and 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 they they spent many, many hours talking and and being together, and yet nothing, nothing our Lord did. Uh, uh, made made it clear to the other disciples that Jesus was a betrayer. Interesting. He loved the man, cared for him, right down to the very end, as we will see. Verse 23 tells us that there was one reclining on Jesus' breast, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That's John being typically anonymous. He uh, he always describes himself as the one whom whom Jesus loved. I've, I think that's true because he was always amazed that Jesus could love the likes of, of him. He was, he was sitting just to Jesus' right, apparently, reclining, actually. As I said last week, they reclined around the table. I've always thought that would be a great way to eat. I think we ought to bring that custom back. They, they would lean on their left elbow, and their legs would be uh, stretched out diagonally behind them, and they would eat with their right hand. And they, the, these men were arranged around the table, and John was right uh, to Jesus' right here. Uh, Simon Peter, therefore, gesturing to him, the word means nodding, nodding or give some kind of, giving some kind of nonverbal signal, said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. 
Peter must have been sitting across the table. When Jesus said, one of you will betray me, we know from the other Gospels that all the disciples began to say, is it I? Is it I? Peter, I'm sure, must have thought that it could very well have, have he, that he could be the culprit, given his, uh, some of his, uh, giving something, given something of his track record. But he was, he was uncertain. I also think, knowing Peter's temperament, that, uh, and since he carried a sidearm, uh, he was going to take care of this fellow. Uh, he was sitting apparently on the other side of the table, reclining on the other side of the table, and he made some sort of gesture to John and said in a low voice, uh, find out who it is. And so John leaned back on Jesus' chest. That's uh, the significance of verse 25. He, that is John, leaning back on Jesus' chest, so he could talk to him quietly. He must have whispered to him because the other disciples didn't pick any of this up said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus therefore answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. He said it quietly. The other disciples didn't hear this. He said, It's the one I give the morsel to. Now, uh, the host at a dinner normally would start the dinner by taking a piece of bread and dipping it into the meat dish and passing it to the person on his left. And uh, that would start start off the meal. That was that was a custom of that time. So when John said, "Who is it?" Jesus said, "It's the one I give the sop to," which would indicate that Judas was right on Jesus' left. So our Lord took the morsel, the sop, as the King James calls it, dipped it in the broth or in the meat dish, and handed it to Judas. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Which, by the way, takes us back to the quotation, He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Now we know from verse 2 of the same chapter that he had been repeatedly tempted by Satan to betray the Lord. He had Satan had put into Judas' mind the thought of betrayal. It all went back to Mary's uh, 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 devotion to Jesus when she broke the jar of nard and washed Jesus' feet with her hair. And Judas was incensed, and Jesus rebuked him because he loved more money more than he loved, loved the Lord. And I think Judas at that point, and the other disciples picked this up in their Gospels, Judas at that point realized that he was not going to make money if he stayed with Jesus, so he made the decision to betray Jesus at that point, and he went to the, to the uh, priest. Now, he thought he was acting on his own. He thought he was simply acting out of self, self-interest. He was an independent agent, but he wasn't. He was Satan's tool. He had been tempted. But at this point, we're told, after the morsel, Satan entered into him. Satan possessed him. So he had gone too far. He'd gone, there's, there's some point beyond which we are irredeemable. Those who don't know the Lord. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. There's a hardness of heart that sets in if we constantly reject the truth. Apparently Judas crossed that line. It was now his actions were inexorable. There was, he had gone too far. Satan possessed him. And uh, he made the decision at that point. Now, I think the Lord must have looked into his eyes. And there was love and pleading on Jesus' face. And all the Lord saw when he looked at Judas was the hardness of his eyes. The determination of his, of his jaw, Judas got up 
And uh, he left. Jesus said to him in verse 27, what you do, do in our text says quickly, do quickly. Actually, it's a comparative form. Uh, it would suggest what you have to do, do it quicker. In other words, speed up the process. Because our Lord, as I pointed out before, was orchestrating his passion. He was destined to die on, on, the, uh, on the Passover, on the day of the Passover, uh, when the Passover lamb was sacrificed. So he's, the Jews did not want to put Jesus to death on a feast day, but our Lord is encouraging Judas to act more quickly to speed up the process. Now, no one of those reclining at table knew for what purpose he had said this, and some were supposing, because Judas has, had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast. The feast was actually a seven-day feast, and they would need to buy food from time to time. So they thought perhaps he'd been sent to the grocery store or else that he should give something to the poor. Because the, the conversation between John and Jesus and Judas was so quiet, the other disciples didn't pick it up. They weren't aware of, of what was being said. And so after receiving the morsel, Judas went out immediately. And it was night. It's one of the most pregnant expressions in the New Testament, I think. It's there for a reason. It's, sim it's not simply that the sun had gone down. It's symbolic. Judas turned his back on the light and he went off into the realm of darkness. There's really nothing that could be done for Judas at this point. Uh, as one of the Proverbs puts it, a man who is often reproved and hardens his, uh, his, his heart shall suddenly be cut off and that without remedy. Now, this seems to be the situation. He had just gone too far. He, he was rebelling against Christ's love. He was betraying his friend. And now uh, his... His, uh, his doom is, is certain. Now, Jesus knew, as I said, from the very beginning that Judas was the betrayer. He knew that this act was predicted, and he knew who the actor was. And yet he didn't put a stop to it. He didn't expose Judas. All the way through the Gospels, you get a picture of our Lord dealing with Judas just as he dealt with the other apostles. His concerns were always redemptive. He wanted to reclaim this man. Now, Luke tells us in Luke uh, 22, 22, that Jesus' crucifixion was determined. It was decreed. That was something that was established from the foundation of the world. But he says, woe be to him who carries out that betrayal. So Judas was responsible. Here you have this, uh, this, this strange thing that we've often noticed in Scripture. God's sovereignty at work and at the same time human responsibility. Philosophers would say that's an antinomy. It's against the law. You, you, you can't have that sort of thing. You can't have God sovereign, God's sovereignty and man's human responsibility. But, but the Bible talks about it. It's a paradox that we can't explain. Both are true. So while Judas was, had made that choice early in his career and had been predicted to be the betrayer, at the same time, the scriptures say, woe be to him who carries out this betrayal. He was responsible. He could have chosen otherwise. That's the point. And our Lord knew it, and he kept reaching out to Judas to save him. Everything he did was redemptive to the man. And yet, at the very end, he betrayed him, turned his back on him. Now, there are some things we need to keep in mind, I think, as we think through this story. Some things that Jesus knew that permitted him to love Judas. The first is that Jesus considered the source. Now, when we say that, we're thinking about the person who, uh, who does uh, something evil to us. 
we say, oh, well, you know what that fellow's like. You know, he, he's a jerk anyway. So we don't pay any attention to what he did or, or what he thinks. Those things don't matter. But that's not what Jesus was, that's not what I'm talking about. Jesus knew that the source of Judas' actions was the evil one. You see, Satan had victimized Judas. Judas wasn't the enemy. He was the victim of the enemy. He didn't know what he was doing. He thought he was acting in independence, out of self-interest, looking out for himself, trying to feather his own nest, when in fact he had played right into Satan's hands. He was the tool of Satan. And Jesus knew that. He didn't know what he was doing. He was ignorant. That's why Jesus from the cross, when he was nailed to the cross, said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. See? Now, we have to understand that behind every enemy, so-called enemy of ours, is a real enemy. I've pointed out in, in, in numerous ways over the last few weeks that we live in enemy territory. We live in a hostile environment. This world is not our Father's home yet. One of these days, our Lord is coming back, and he's going to redeem the earth that we, that we live on. But for the present time, this is Satan's domain. And there will be rapids, there will be troubled waters, there will be difficulties out there because there is an enemy, uh, uh, a murderous, treacherous tyrant who's out to destroy us. The reason is because God loves us. You see, God loves us more than anything else in this world. He longs for us to, to be with him in heaven and home. He yearns for us. He died for us. He would do anything in the world for us. And because Satan hates God... He's going to do everything he can to destroy the objects of, of God's love. And we have to understand that. Satan is out to murder us. Uh, I, let me read a section from C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. This, you know, is a backward look at life. This is the way the demons look at things. And, and, and I think C.S. Lewis has well captured the animosity that the demons have toward, toward human beings. Just read through this and you get some idea of of how intense is their hatred of the human race. Everything they do is designed to upset and destroy and wreck and wreak havoc and make our lives miserable and unhappy and, and eventually to, to kill us. And uh, on, on this, particular, this particular piece of correspondence, uh, Screwtape is, a, is a, uh, a demon rather high up in the hierarchy, and Wormwood is one of his uh, underlings that he's responsible for. And the book is uh, the correspondence between Screwtape and uh, Wormwood. And you have to understand everything is backwards. The enemy is God, and you know you don't take this seriously. Uh, otherwise, you'd, you'd be demonic. Uh, this is the way the demons look at life. Wormwood's patient, who was a young Christian, had fallen in love with a fine young Christian woman. Lovely person, young Christian uh, woman. And he's deeply in love with her. And uh, this is this is what uh, Screw Tape says about it, and this gives us some idea of how intense is the uh, demon's hatred for for anyone who wants to please God. He says, "I have looked up this girl's dossier, and I'm horrified at what I find. Not only is she a Christian, but what a Christian! A vile, sneaking, simpering, demure, monosyllabic, mouse-like, watery." insignificant, virginal, bread-and-butter miss. She's a little brute. She makes me vomit. She stinks and scalds through the very pages of the dossier. It drives me mad the way the world has worsened. 
We have had her sort in the arena in the old days. That's what her sort is made for. Now, that gives you some idea of uh, what Satan thinks about you, you see. And what he will do is pick up any willing instrument and use that tool against you to blight your life, to ruin it if he can, uh, to cause pain and, and suffering. You see, that helps us. To, it gives us a different look at the people that, that are Satan's tools. They're not the enemy. They're just victims of the enemy. The husband that walks out, the wife who grows cold, the friend who stabs you in the back. They, they don't know what they're doing. And, and we can say from Jesus' standpoint on the cross, we may not be nailed to a cross, but, but someone may, may have nailed you to the wall. And we can say from that, from that perspective, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Just victims, that's all. They're not the enemy. The real enemy lies, lies behind. Now, the second thing I would say, you see, you see, Jesus knew that. He considered the source. The second thing he did was to consider the result. Because when you think this all the way through, though Satan's uh, intent was to destroy our Lord, to put an end to salvation, to his, his efforts to bring salvation to us, basically what he did was affect salvation. He got Judas... To go to the officials, the officials arrested Jesus, put him on trial and killed him. And through that act of crucifixion, the whole world was saved. So what we perceive to be something evil in our life, some act of betrayal, God will use for good. Now that takes a lot of faith to believe that, but that's that's what you find over and over again in, in the Scripture. The person who stabs you in the back, the person who causes you so much grief... The person who rejects you and who walks out on you, that person and his actions can actually be used for good in your life. Remember the story of Joseph? That's a, that's a premier example of this, of this principle. Joseph was kind of a little past. I can understand why his brothers didn't like him, but he, you know, he wasn't that bad. They took their little brother and sold him into slavery to a bunch of Midianite traders. The traders sold him in Egypt, and he spent long years in, in uh, servitude. He was in prison for 12 years. He had a hard time. Finally, he, through God's grace, he rose to be vice-regent of the country. And much later, when Jacob and the patriarchal family, who numbered 70 at this time, came down into Egypt uh, to get away from the drought, the drought forced them out of the land of Canaan. They came down into Egypt. Joseph was in a position to help them. He found a place for them to live in Goshen and provided for them, gave them food, saved their lives. They would have died in the land of Canaan. Saved their lives. And later when you have this uh, uh, vivid electric scene where he reveals himself to his brother, they didn't realize who Joseph was. They thought he was just one of the Egyptians. He reveals himself to him. He says, I'm your brother. He began to weep and they were scared to death because they thought he would, he would take vengeance on them. Remember what he said? He said, I was sent here by God to save you. He said, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. That's that's Genesis 50, if you want to look that up. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Now, we just have to look at people like that. They're, they're, They're most evil deeds that they direct against us. They may mean it for evil. But God will take that thing that hurts so badly and he'll turn it to good. Because we grow up. 
See, one, one of the reasons why God won't let us get, get, let us settle down here, you know, our marriages aren't always what they're supposed to be, and our children aren't, and our jobs aren't, and our health isn't. Because if everything were perfect here, we wouldn't need God. Who needs God when you've got heaven on earth here? And so God, and God does not send these people into our lives, but he will permit them to come into our lives to disrupt our families and our, our uh, harmony. And what that does is drive us back to God and we lay hold on him and we come to see who he is and what he can do. And, and we begin to mature as Christians, so he turns the thing to good. I, a number of years ago, I had a good friend turn on me and uh, it really hurt. I found out that he was uh, organizing little groups in his home. And they were having roast uh, preacher uh, talking about the things that I was doing that they didn't like. And I got wind of it. Someone came to me and said, I think you need to know about this. So I, uh, Matthew 18 says, if you have something against your brother, you go to your brother. And I just wanted to go talk to him and say, look, you know, if there's a problem, let's work it out. Let's just sit down and talk about it. You don't need to organize things back here. Let's, let's face into it. Oh, he got real mad. And I said, well, tell me, what's the problem? Actually, we were talking on the telephone at the time. And he shouted over the earpiece. He said, you, he said, are a wicked shepherd who's scattering the sheep. And I gulped. And I said, do you realize that's a quotation from the Old Testament? And he said, yes. And I said, do you know who said that? And he said, yes. It was Jeremiah the prophet. And I said, do you know who he said that to? And he said, no. And I said, he said that to Jehoiakim, who was one of the worst kings in the history of the southern kingdom, who, who burned his son in Topheth, sacrificed him to, to Moloch, and, and basically is responsible for the decline and the, ultimately the death of the southern kingdom. So that's, that's pretty hard words. And, and, and at about that point, I got real mad. And I hung up on the guy. And I went walking through the house just steaming. I was really storming and angry. And think, who does that guy think he is? And all of a sudden it hit me. Who do I think I am? See, what, what things like this do is help you to see how much pride and, and arrogance and how little real humility we have. Someone like that comes along and they see something hurtful and we, we get defensive and hostile and angry, upset. And, and it shows us what we are, see? So though it hurts, it's a good thing in the end. Because it brings out the real person so we can, we can deal with it. And I'd have to say, God sent the man. <laughs> he didn't send him in the sense that he instigated the thing, but he permitted it so I could learn from it. Let, let me read a story in the Old Testament to you. You don't need to turn to it. It's, it's a... It's not a very well-known story. It came out of David's life. It's in 2 Samuel. Uh, actually, it happened uh, when he was just driven into exile, when his son Absalom took over the throne, and David had to run for his life. And he was crossing the Jordan on his way up the other... Well, actually, he hadn't quite gotten to the Jordan yet. And when King David came to Bahurim, behold, there came out from there... A man of the family of the house of Saul. He was a Benjamite. There had always been animosity between Saul's house and David's house. Because Saul had been king first. 
And that dynasty died, God set it aside, and he appointed the Davidic house to be king of, of Judah. And this man was still smarting over that. There came a man from the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shimei. You ever heard of Shimei? Hardly anybody's ever heard of this fella. We ought to talk more about him. He came out cursing continually as he came. And he threw stones at David. The uh, Hebrew verb tense that's used is the most intensive form that they use. Uh, he was really, he was chunking rocks, big rocks. He was throwing hard, trying to hit the king of Judah with a rock. It'd be like, you know, if President Reagan were going on Independence Avenue and you picked up a big rock and, and threw it at his head. That's what he was doing. He threw stones at David. And thus Shemai said when he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of bloodshed, you murderer. He was blaming David for all the, the evil that had fallen on the house of Saul. David wasn't responsible. You worthless fellow. Hebrew word means trash, literally. You're just nothing but trash. He was cursing him, throwing rocks at him. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the, of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. He hadn't usurped the throne. God deposed Saul and put David on the throne. And or the house of Saul and put David's house on the throne. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil. You're a murderer, he says. Then Abishai, the son of Zeriah, said to the king, this was one of David's mighty men. Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? In other words, this dog is as good as dead. Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. Now, he says, what are you, why are you putting up with this? Let me go over and waste the little runt. He doesn't have any right to talk to you like that. Listen to what David said. But the king said, what have I to do with you, O son of Zeruiah? In other words, we have nothing in common. We're not looking at this situation the same way. If he curses, it's because the Lord has told him, curse David. Then who shall say, why have you done so? Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son who came out for me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look on my sin and return good to me instead of, of cursing this day. Uh, the uh, text says affliction, but the word is sin. And what David is, is realizing is that even if he doesn't deserve this treatment from, from Shemai, he's a sinful man. And he really has, has no reason not to expect cursing and, and rejection. And he shouldn't be resentful of it. And God had sent this man in the sense that he had permitted this man to, to come and curse him and pelt him with, with rocks. And David saw clearly what this was all about. This was God's way of bringing him about good in his life. So that's where we have to start. We have to consider the source that is the enemy that's instigated the, the, this whole thing. I mean, he's behind it. And... We have to consider the purpose of it all. It's for our good. That he can take the worst thing that happens to us. A marriage that falls apart. A love relationship that disintegrates. A friendship that's betrayed. He can take the worst situations and produce good out of it. And realizing that sets you free to love the person. And care about them. Care more about them than you do about your own well-being and and, and reputation. He began to think about them. And that's what the Lord did. He saw through everything. And he was able to love this man, Judas. 
Now, that does not mean that we have to be absolutely silent, just take all sorts of abuse that people hand out and never say anything. Paul says the servant in, in 2 Timothy 2, the servant of God must not strive, but be patient with all men and all women, he could have said. In meekness, that is, in, 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 in a non-defensive spirit, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if perhaps God will set them free from the one who has captured them to do his will. See, here's this thing again that, that, that tells us that these people are not the enemy, they're the victims of the enemy. It's Satan who, has, who is using this person as his tool. And the way we break through to them is by speaking the truth in love. Those two ideas are always paired. How we do what we do is just as important as what we do. If someone is abusing you verbally or physically, you have every reason and right in the world to stand up and say you can't treat people like that. I, I don't know where we ever got the idea that 1 Peter 3, for example, tells us that the submission of a woman in a, in a home means that she can say absolutely nothing, that her husband has the right to say anything to her or treat her anyway, and she just has to take it silently. That is not what Peter is saying. If you read through the first verses of 1 Peter uh, the last, last part of chapter 2. He uses Jesus as an example. And uh, the way that's normally interpreted is uh, in this manner. Jesus was like a lamb brought before her shears, and he didn't open his mouth. Likewise, women are, are to be submissive to their husbands in the same way. They don't open their mouth. They don't say anything like Jesus. They just grin and bear it, even when they're abused verbally or, or physically. That's what submission means. But people who believe that don't read the text. The text doesn't say that she's absolutely silent. The point made from Jesus' example is that he didn't sin. When he was reviled, he didn't revile. When, when he was, when he was uh, 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 accused, he didn't accuse back. He didn't strike back. He didn't try to retaliate. That's the point. It's not saying that a woman can't say something when she's being abused. She can if your husband verbally abuses you, then you have the right to say, that's not right. You, we can't talk to one another that way. We're made in the image of God. No one has the right to undignify another person in that way. You can speak up. Same is true of physical abuse. You don't have to take that. You can leave. Or you can stop that abuse in some way, in some legal way, if, if necessary. You don't have to take that. That's not uh, male headship and leadership. That's male dominance. That's all that is, and it's sin. But it's so important how you do what you do. It has to be motivated by love. You have to see that whoever that person is who's betraying you, abusing you, stabbing you in the back, mistreating you, whatever it may be, behind that person is the real enemy who is instigating this activity. They do not know what they're doing. They're ignorant. And secondly, you have to see that that even in these situations that are seen to be so damaging to our personalities and egos, God can use them to, to, to accomplish good. He's going to build us, He's going to draw us to Him, and He's going to give us what we need in order to face into life. But at the same time, we're to love the person, speak the truth to them, but do it graciously and gently and kindly. And be firm, be strong, but it needs to be done kindly, you see. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5. 
Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In, in order that you may be, son, may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to raise in the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's a tall order. Love your enemies. Because the Father loves his. Do you see that? And if you want an example of, of the way the Father acts, you can't uh, see the Father. He's invisible. But you can see Jesus. And you can see Jesus in his dealing with Judas. He loved the man. He spoke truth to him. But he loved the man and he prayed for the man. You see? I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. We need to bear the likeness of the Father who causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Sends joy and love and laughter and family and good times to people who hate him, who curse him, who would stab him in the back if they had the opportunity. He would betray him so he loves them. And Jesus says, be like your father. If you love those who love you, what reward have you? That's, that's no big deal. It says even tax collectors love people that love them. It's easy to love a husband or wife who's, who's kind and loving and thoughtful and warm. If you greet your brothers only, what, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Gentiles is Jesus' word for those on the outside, non, non-believers, unbelievers. They greet, they greet their brothers. But what do you do to those that betray you? See, what do you do more than these? That's the standard by which we're measured. It's the standard of Christ himself who did more than anyone else, who loved those that, that persecuted him. Therefore, he says, you're to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word means mature, fully grown up, grown up sons of, of the Father. Now, that's the tall order. I, I, you know, none of us can do this in our own strength. We can't love our enemies. It takes the Lord in us, His indwelling presence. We have to first give our hearts to Him. Let Him dominate our, our hearts and our thoughts and reign and rule within. And, and then we begin to love others as He loved them. He did it once. We see it in the text. He can do it again in us. He can do it today. He can do it this week. Let's pray. Let's keep in mind that our, our Lord's efforts were always redemptive. He did not come merely to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And that's our pattern as well. Our, our tendency is simply to judge those that betray us, to write them off as a dead loss. But our Lord doesn't do that. He sees them as people that are lost and ignorant used, manipulated by the evil one. And he set aside his own personal comfort and interest in order to to care for them and to provide for them. And we need to do the same. And we can only do that as we we keep counting on him. So Lord, help us this morning to take a fresh look at ourselves. Help us to be honest with ourselves as we see the pride and uh, the prejudice that we have toward those that have mistreated us. And help us to be uh, 
to be as loving as you were toward the one who betrayed you. And we know that's only possible because of of your indwelling presence. Help us to speak truth where it's necessary, but to do so in a spirit of love. Lord, we thank you for uh, your goodness that draws us to repentance. We know that even when we were sinners, you died for us. We thank you for loving us even when we were indifferent toward you drawing us into a relationship with you. And now we want to exemplify that before others and draw them also into, uh, into a relationship with you. So thank you for being our Lord. Thank you for indwelling us this week. Make us what you've called us to be. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.